0: Dear people of God, Psalm 85 consists of four stanzas, clearly marked off from each other by spaces in your NIV Bibles. I'll be going through the four stanzas one by one, and each stanza will be projected on the screen as I comment on it. After the sermon, we will sing the versification of this song in the hymnal, which also consists of four stanzas matching the four of the biblical text. I'm having a bit of trouble with my throat. throat) Although the psalm consists of four stanzas, a more basic division of the psalm is into two halves, each consisting of two stanzas. The first half, verses one to seven, constitutes a prayer. And the second half, verses eight to 13, constitutes a promise. A prayer to God is followed by a promise from God. And we can also deduce from the second stanza that the psalmist is writing at a time of crisis. He is experiencing hard times. These facts explain the title of my sermon: "A Prayer and a Promise in Hard Times." As we go through the psalm, we will learn something about the structure of a biblical prayer and something about the extravagant promise of God in response to His praying people. Leaving aside for the moment the the words of the superscription, the little annotation at the very beginning which has to do with the origin and the musical performance of the psalm in the temple worship service. Let's take a closer look at the first stanza. You showed favor to your land, O Lord. You restored the the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. I'm reading from the NIV. The the projected text may be a little bit different here and there, but not of any significance. It is clear from these words, it is clear that these words are the beginning of a prayer in which the psalmist addresses God directly and he begins by acknowledging the goodness and kindness which God has shown his people in the past. You showed favor, you restored the fortunes, you forgave the iniquity, you covered our sins, you set aside your wrath, you turned from your anger. Clearly, God has been kind and gracious to his people in the past. What specifically is the psalmist referring to? Many commentators believe that he is referring to the time of Israel's return from the Babylonian captivity in the sixth century BC. The southern kingdom of Judah had been attacked by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. He had destroyed Jerusalem in the temple and had taken many Jews into exile in Babylonia. Then, after roughly 70 years of exile, the Lord orchestrated world history in such a way that the Babylonian Empire was replaced by the Persian Empire under Cyrus. And Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. In fact, he even provided imperial funds to enable them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this return after 70 years was an amazing and an unprecedented world historical development, although it had been predicted earlier by the prophets Jeremiah and Daniel. God, in his anger at his people's covenant disobedience, had severely punished them with exile, but now was prepared to return to them in mercy to forgive their iniquity and to make a fresh start with them in their ancient homelands. Now, why do biblical scholars conclude that this initial stanza of the psalm refers to the return from Babylonian exile? Well, one reason is that the phrase that is translated, you restored the fortunes of Jacob, can also be translated, you brought Jacob back from exile. And that's, in fact, how it was understood in the King James Version, which has, thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. And there are other features of the psalm as well, which fit well with the time just after Israel's return from Babylonia, as we will see. So the opening stanza of the psalm begins the psalmist's prayer to God by acknowledging his past goodness. Notice how he stresses especially God's forgiveness of past sins and his turning away from his past past anger. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. In all likelihood, the sins that were forgiven and covered were in the first place the sins that led to the Babylonian exile, especially idolatry. And the anger that God set aside and turned away from was the anger that came to expression in that same Babylonian exile. We turn now to the second stanza, which reads as follows: Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord and grant us your salvation." The psalmist continues his prayer, but now he uses very different language, and he even seems to contradict what he has just said in stanza one. He has just said that God has set aside and turned away from his anger, but now he assumes that God is still angry. In fact, he wonders if he will be angry forever. His words are unmistakable. Put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? What's going on here? Apparently, something has happened since the time described in stanza one, when God had restored the fortunes of of Jacob, or brought Jacob back from exile, The situation has changed since the time when God had forgiven his people and set aside his anger. Apparently, the people had once more fallen into sin, and God was again angry with them. In fact, their situation had become quite desperate because the psalmist now cries out to God to revive, that means make alive again, his people, implying that they were as good as dead. And he cries out to them, grant us salvation, that is, rescue them from their troubles. Clearly, the psalmist and his people are experiencing hard times. God is angry with them again, and they are in serious trouble. This situation also matches the circumstances of the Jews after their return from the 70 years of exile in Babylonia. When the initial small band of returnees arrived back in Jerusalem and surrounding areas around 538 BC, they soon ran into opposition from the non-Jewish local residents, and they abandoned the project of rebuilding the temple. Eighteen years later, in 520 BC, the temple was still lying in ruins, and the Lord was angry with his people, sending them drought and crop failure. And it was then that the Lord raised up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who encouraged the people to finally rebuild the temple and promised that prosperity would follow if they did so. It is in that context that we should hear the words of stanza two. Notice how bold the psalmist is in his appeal to God. His boldness comes out especially in his use of imperative verbs and rhetorical questions. Imperative verbs are those which express a command. And the psalmist dares to use the language of command in addressing God. Restore us, God. I'm ordering you. Put away your displeasure. Show us your love. Grant us your salvation. It's almost as though the psalmist is saying, come on, God, you've got to do something here. Although this kind of language is common in the Psalms, and indeed in biblical prayers in general, it is still rather startling to realize that God's covenant people is authorized to use the language of command in addressing their covenant partner. And the same goes for the the use of rhetorical questions, which the psalmist does not shy away from either. Listen again to what he says. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again? This kind of language almost sounds like a challenge to God. But again, the psalms and other prayers recorded in the Bible are full of this kind of challenging language. God allows us to speak directly and forcefully to Him, and even to use language which does not sound very deferential or respectful when we cry out in anguish and desperation. There's something else, too, that we learn about prayer when we consider stanza 2 in connection with stanza 1. The boldness of the appeal in stanza two is made possible by the acknowledgement of God's mercies in stanza one, and this too is a pattern we often find in the Bible. First we remember the ways God has been good to us, and we acknowledge that to him. Then we give expression to our requests and our petitions, appealing to God to be good to, go to us again, as he has been good in the past. Although this pattern is not an inflexible rule for our prayers, it is a good guideline to follow. First to recall God's mercies in the past, and then to bring our petitions before him. And those petitions can be quite bold and forceful if they are preceded by our recognition that we have already, in multiple ways, been the recipients of God's mercy and love in the past. We move now to the second half of the psalm. As we said before, the first half, consisting of stanzas 1 and 2, constitute the prayer part of the psalm. The second half, consisting of stanzas 3 and 4, constitute the promise part of the psalm. Stanza 3 reads as follows. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promised peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. The first thing we notice about this stanza, it is that it is no longer a prayer addressed to God, but a promise coming to us from God. As the second line puts it, he promises peace, to his people. The second thing we notice is that in the first line there is a switch from we to I. Stanza two had consistently spoken of we or us. Restore us again. Put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? And so on. But now the plural becomes a singular. I will listen what God the Lord says. Who is this I? Clearly, it must be the psalmist himself, but the psalmist in an unusual role. Here, he is not a poet expressing his personal thoughts, feelings, or prayers, but he is someone who is preparing to listen what God has to say, and then proceeds to communicate what it is that God does say. In other words, the poet becomes a prophet, that is, a spokesman for God. The first line of this stanza is, I will listen to what God the Lord says. And the lines that follow give the content of what he hears God say. He is like the prophet Habakkuk, who writes at the beginning of chapter two of his prophecy, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what God will say to me and what answer I am am to give. And then he proceeds to pass on the Lord's response. So it is here with the psalmist. He says, I'm going to listen to what God says, and then he proceeds to tell his audience what it is that God says. This stanza therefore, and the one that follows, are the response of God to the prayer expressed by the psalmist in the first half of the psalm. And that response is in the form of a promise. What exactly does the Lord promise in response to the psalmist's prayer? In this stanza it is three things. Peace, salvation, and glory. He promises peace to His people, His saints. The Hebrew word for peace, as we all know, is shalom, and it refers to much more than peace in the sense of absence of war. It refers more broadly to wholeness, well-being, or prosperity, even including agricultural prosperity when the, when the crops grow. It comes from a root that means to be whole. So what the Lord is promising here is a life of wholeness in which people thrive. It is a comprehensive term which includes many of the other blessings that the Lord promises. The promise of this comprehensive shalom is not without its qualifier, however. The next line reads, But let them not return to folly. The promise is not an automatic get out of jail free card. It depends on not returning to folly, which in the Bible has more to do with ungodliness than a lack of good sense. And the second promise in this stanza is salvation. The text says, surely his salvation is near those who fear him. This is a direct response to the bold petition in the previous stanza, grant us your salvation. The word salvation here does not have the specific theological meaning that we're used to, meaning eternal security received by faith, but more generally, rescue or deliverance from any desperate situation. In this case, the difficult situation in which the Jews found themselves some years after their return from exile. Part of that deliverance was accomplished when the temple in Jerusalem was in fact finally rebuilt and prosperity did return to the land. The third promise is glory. The coming of salvation has the result that his glory May dwell in our land. Now, although it is true in general that wherever God's saving power is displayed, His glory is revealed, the reference here is probably more specifically to the glory of God's presence in the temple when it was rebuilt after the exile. That's made quite explicit in the early chapters of the uh, the prophet Zechariah that God would, when the temple had been rebuilt, He would come back to the temple and his glory would reside in the midst of Israel. So stanza three promises shalom, salvation or deliverance, and the glory of God's presence among his people. But that is not the full extent of God's promise. Stanza four expands on that promise and gives a highly imaginative and poetic picture of a world transformed. This is how it reads. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. This is a very remarkable passage, one that is in many ways unique in the Bible. What is especially striking is that the various abstract qualities of this promised future, specifically love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace, are personified. They are treated as though they are personal agents which interact harmoniously with with each other in a future perfect world. Consider the following phrases. Love and faithfulness meet together as though these attributes of God were people who had arranged to get together. And again, righteousness and peace kiss each other as though these qualities were individuals who greet or show affection for each other. Furthermore, righteousness, which is mentioned three times, does not only kiss peace, but the text says that it looks down from heaven, like the benevolent gaze of God, and it, quote, goes before him and prepares the way for his steps, like a herald announcing the coming of a king. In an even bolder metaphor, bolder metaphor, the text says that faithfulness springs forth from the earth as though the very ground gives rise to the virtue of faithfulness. And then in the middle of these poetically personified abstractions, there's the very concrete and specific promise. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. In other words, the crop failure of the present will be replaced by agricultural prosperity. The overall effect of this highly imaginative depiction of the future is that we are given a vista of a future perfect world where peace prevails, righteousness rules, and love sets the tone. It is an eschatological vision of what the apostle Peter calls a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And actually Peter is there quoting Isaiah. It seems as though the psalmist in this final stanza goes beyond the specifics of his own situation when the returning Jews in the sixth century appealed to God for deliverance and from their own difficult circumstances When the temple lay in ruins, their neighbors were harassing them, their crops were failing, and God was again angry with them. And instead, he paints a picture of the ultimate restoration of all things. This vision of the eschatological future is the climax of the promise half of Psalm 85, and indeed of the Psalm as a whole. So we see that this psalm breaks down neatly into two halves, the prayer half and the promise half, and we understand why it can be referred to as a prayer and a promise in hard times. What does that have to do with us as New Testament believers? The book of Psalms has been the prayer book of the Christian church for two millennia, Beginning with Jesus and the apostles, believers have appropriated for themselves the words of the Psalms and have incorporated them into their own prayers and psalms. We can identify with the psalmists and echo their words, both their words of confidence, comfort, and faith, and their words of pain, lamentation, and despair. As we mentioned earlier, There are things that we can learn about prayer from the first half of the psalm, especially the pattern of recalling to mind God's mercy in the past before we bring before him our petitions concerning the present and future. That's not a law of the Medes and Persians, but a useful guideline to bear in mind for our own prayers. We also learn from the prayer half of the psalm that the Lord gives us permission to use very bold and forceful language in appealing to God, In our covenant relationship with with the Lord, we can cry out in plain and passionate words for the Lord to hear and answer us. Just like children speaking to their father, believers can open their hearts to God in straightforward and direct language without fear of reprisal. But what about the promise half of the song? Here we can learn from later scripture that the Lord in many ways did fulfill the promise of shalom, salvation and glory to the Jews who had returned from exile. We know from the books of Ezra and then later Haggai and Zechariah that the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple in their day was a turning point in the fortunes of the returnees. Read Haggai 2 and Zechariah 8. They once again experienced shalom, both in the sense of no longer being harassed by their neighbors and in the sense of having agricultures thrive again. In that way they also received salvation in the sense of being delivered from the hard times they were experiencing. More importantly, they received the fulfillment of the promise that, that God's glory would dwell in the land when the Lord once again took up residence in their midst in the rebuilt temple. And, of course, these blessings were not the ultimate fulfillment of these promises. A much greater fulfillment took place in the time of the New Testament, when Jesus Christ brought shalom, salvation, and glory, in a much more profound sense, to the whole world. And even that was not the final fulfillment of God's promises, because we still look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness the eschatological restoration of all things that is so dramatically foreshadowed in stanza four. So we learn from the second half of Psalm 85 that in response to our prayers, the Lord fulfills his promises in installments, sometimes in small or big ways in our own lifetimes, sometimes much later in the history of God's people, and finally and completely in the new heaven and new earth after Christ returns. Bearing that in mind, and remembering the words of the Apostle Paul, that all the promises of God are yes in Christ, we can confidently apply to ourselves the glorious promises of Psalm 85, also when we are going through hard times. To that let all God's people say, Amen. Shall we pray? Lord God, we too can say with the psalmist, you forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. In Jesus Christ, you set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. And we thank you for all the goodness and the acts of deliverance that we have experienced in our lives. And we want to ask you in the light of, that, of the, the prayer and the promise that we read about in Psalm 85, that you will apply that psalm to our hearts, that we too may rest on your promises, and that we too, in covenant communion with you, may pray to you and, and accept take you at your word when you promise us good things. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.